0: The coming of Christ through the eyes of a couple, of the characters in the in the Gospel of Luke. Last week we looked at uh, Zechariah and his song. This week we'll look at Mary, and next week we'll look at Elizabeth. Um, and our our text this morning is, uh, in the tradition, is called the Annunciation, because the angel Gabriel come and this is announces to Mary that she will be conceive a child. So our text is Luke chapter one, verse twenty six to thirty eight. And the angel departed her. The word of the Lord. Lord, we asked um, for the faith of Mary uh, this morning that we would learn uh, what it means to hear your word and to, to say as she said, let it be according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. if you grew up in an evangelical church or context, most likely you heard that to have a relationship with Jesus usually started with you accepting him into your heart, right? Um, you've gotta accept Jesus into your heart. When I was in high school, I became a Christian in high school, and um, I had a Bible and I had the, found this really cool postcard that I taped to the front of my paperback Bible and it was a picture of Jesus uh, standing next to a life sized door in the shape of a heart with Jesus knocking on the door, right? You know, accept him into your heart. Um, and it's uh, based on this, this, this idea of Jesus knocking at the door and accepting him into your heart. is based on Revelation 3, where G, uh, John is writing, giving these words to the church of Laodicea, "'Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door,' I will come into him and eat with him, and he will uh, eat with me. I had, so I had this Bible, and I remember meeting with an old, older mentor friend, who, um, a man named Mel Borden, and he saw my Bible, and uh, he's like, "You know, that's not accurate, right? That the idea of accepting Jesus into your heart—I mean, that's not, that's a misreading of that text." Really, the text is the exalted, ascended Lord knocking on the door of the church, calling the church to repentance. Um, the idea that you accept Jesus into your heart is really not a, a phrase or a concept that you really see in the scriptures. So I accepted his correction, theologically. I didn't take a card, uh, note card, off my Bible because it was a pretty cool picture. Um, and I thought he was probably being a little bit fussy. Um <clears throat> But he was correct. Accepting Jesus into your heart um, when it's just just not an image you find in in the New Testament. Um, And it's actually a very uh, kind of distorting uh, way of thinking about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And I think, I mean, just think about what it means. It's like, I got Jesus, he's just coming into my heart, this little miniaturized Jesus. He's just going to come into my heart and take up root there, right? And you know, on the one hand, it captures the kind of personal character of a relationship with Jesus, but it's actually not quite quite the right way that Scripture thinks about it. Because accepting Jesus in your heart is far too safe and tame uh, compared to the reality of actually what it means to to give your lives over to Jesus. So um, the Bible has lots of different images to capture what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, But the one that I would like to offer you today comes from the story of Jesus. So it's not about accepting Jesus into your heart. It's about accepting Jesus into your womb. What do you think about that? (laughs) Do you think that will catch on? Have you accepted Jesus into your womb? Will you let him attach to the wall of your uterus? Will you let his body grow inside of your body? Now, I doubt that this is ever going to catch on and become like a phrase within evangelicalism, accepting Jesus into your womb. And some of you, especially the men, are very uncomfortable right now, perhaps perplexed. But this is good, because you're coming closer uh, to the utter strangeness of what Mary experienced and actually what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. The idea of accepting Jesus into your womb is a strange one, but when we do this, we begin to wrestle, I think, with the mystery and the miracle of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have a relationship with Christ. In the Christian tradition, Mary has been uh, described as the model of devotion of what it means to be a Christian, and I think that is correct. Um, You know, we're not Roman Catholic. We do not you know, affirm the impeccability of Mary or her perfection. But no one had a closer relationship with Jesus than Mary did. No one had a closer relationship with Jesus than Mary did. Um, And what Mary does is she puts us in touch with the humanity of Jesus, his very flesh. Uh, It's easy um, for our relationship to Jesus to become very abstract, very sort of intellectualized or spiritualized. And I think what Mary shows us is what does it mean to have like, a flesh-on-flesh relationship with the person of Jesus. And, and I think what Mary also does, which is so important in the Christian tradition, often lost in Protestantism, is that Mary reveals and discloses the feminine dimension to Christian spirituality, um, which is true not just for women, but also for men as well. Now, the Bible often uses gender-specific language to talk about a relationship with God. And oftentimes it's male-oriented, so circumcision and sonship, right? That's very male-focused. But it's meant to be universal, that women as well were also understood to be just as much daughters as you know, sons are sons, right? And you know, when we flatten out and we try to make everything gender-neutral in the Bible, there's a lot that's lost. Um, but it's really important on this point to recognize that Mary is a model here not just for women, but for all of us, for men as well. And so this Advent season, we've been, you know, reflecting on what does it mean for us to welcome, anticipate the coming of Christ. And last week, I introduced to you guys this idea that there's not just two comings of Christ, that there's a third coming as well. The first coming, of course, is when Jesus comes in flesh, in weakness, as a human, as a baby. The second coming is when he comes in glory, at the end of history. But the third coming is the coming that in a sense, links the two. The third coming is a hidden coming. It's a coming that we all are longing for and waiting for now. And it's a coming that only comes about through faith and through the Spirit. And I think Mary has a great deal for us to teach us this morning. Zachariah, last week, uh, we looked at learning to cultivate a prophetic imagination. I think what Mary teaches us here is um, about the third coming of Christ is the surrender of faith. Mary teaches us what does it mean to have a faith that surrenders. She teaches us that we must surrender our bodies to the Word of God like a mother surrenders her womb to a child. That's the image of faith, that we have to be willing to surrender our bodies, our whole lives to the Word of God in the same way that a mother surrenders her womb, her very body, For a child. That's what it means to receive Jesus into your life. He, in a sense, by the word of God, becomes conceived within you and grows within you. See, Jesus doesn't just want your heart, you know, live in your heart. He wants your body. He wants the whole of you. He wants to grow inside of you, and he desires a kind of intimacy. And I can't, I mean, I have no idea what it's like to be a mother. I can only look from the outside, but I can't imagine the kind of intimacy and closeness and connection that a mother and a child feel in that that stage of just sharing the same flesh, right? It's an incredible thought. But this is something that God says is true of our relationship with Jesus for all of us, that kind of intimacy. And so Mary here is a model, and we need to learn to say, as Mary said, when she is brought with this news that she will be the mother of the Most High, I am the handmaiden of the Lord, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. So how, do, how does this work, though? How does this surrender work in Mary's life? Uh, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that for Mary, surrender actually involves thinking. <laughs> we tend to think of surrender as not thinking, but it's, that, it's like quite the opposite. Mary, when, she hear, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and makes and, you know, the annunciation that she will conceive a child in her womb, will be called the son of the most high and will save you know her people from their sins she doesn't simply say wonderful that's great sign me up mary's response is not blind obedience or unthinking faith she wrestles with the word she wrestles with it and you actually see in the story there's a kind of progression first she's troubled when the angel comes natural When an angel comes into your presence, then she's trying to discern, right? She's thinking, like, what does this mean? And then she asks a question, how will this be? Um, When the word of God meets us, when it really comes into our lives, it's troubling. It's disruptive of life as normal. And we're not sure, is it for my good or is it for my harm? It's going to change my life. What does it mean? I have to discern it. And one of the things you see repeated in the Gospels about Mary is it says uh, things like, and she treasured these, these things up, and she pondered these things in her heart. You have this sense that Mary, as she watches the life of her son, Jesus, unfold, she's just pondering and thinking. It's like, I don't understand all that this, this, this boy is about and what his mission is, but she's pondering and she's thinking. And Mary asks a very reasonable question how will this be since I am a virgin? See, Mary has an inquiring and reasoning faith, right? She's a deep thinker. She, in, in genuine faith, actually leads to more thinking and more reasoning, not less. I think so important to say in, our, in our, our world because the dominant narrative about faith in our culture is that Uh, faith is the absence of thinking and reasoning. Faith is what comes in when you've kind of run out of reasons. you just got to believe that faith is kind of irrational or subjective or it's about feeling. Um, But this is simply not the case in the Bible. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Faith is not the opposite of reason. The opposite of faith in the Bible is unbelief. The opposite of faith in the Bible is unbelief. And last week I talked a little bit about this in the story of Zechariah because in the opening of Luke you have these two different appearances of the same angel, Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel comes and makes announcement of a miraculous birth, that his wife Elizabeth will be pregnant. She's been barren for their whole lives. And Zechariah's response is, how will this be? He doesn't actually, not how will this be, but what will be the sign, right? He's asking a question. And there the angel actually judges him and says, the sign is gonna be you won't be able to speak because you didn't believe me. Mary, the angel comes to Mary and announces a miraculous birth, and she says, well, how will this be? Right? And it might seem like, well, this is hypocritical, but there's a very subtle difference here in the way the question is asked. See, when Zechariah asks the question, it comes not from a place of faith, but it actually comes from a place of doubt or unbelief, better. It's like, I've been waiting and praying my whole life and this hasn't happened, and I'll believe it when I see it. He's bitter, he's cynical, he's unbelieving. Mary, it's a different thing. And I think, again, to come back to this idea of unbelief, it's very, I, I think we have a hard time with these terms, or understanding how they work in our own heart. As I said last week, it's possible to believe, like I believe in God, I believe in forgiveness, I believe in grace, and you know the incarnation, but to still have unbelief where I, I don't believe these things are true for me. At the heart of unbelief is this idea that God has to prove Himself on my terms. He has to sort of play according to my rules or my understanding. That's what a sign is, right? A sign, you know, when in the Bible, when 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 Zechariah asked for a sign, or the Pharisees or the crowds asked for a sign, they're like, prove to us that you really are who you are saying, right? These signs, these aren't good enough. An angel coming to you isn't good enough, right? And that's the whole idea of unbelief, is that God has to, in a sense, submit to our kind of criteria for what will count as evidence or reasons that we can accept. And what we do when we do this, when we test God, this is what it means to test God, um, is we, we put ourselves in the place of God. You see that? Like we reverse the creator creature relationship. We presume that we are in the place of all knowing divinity and that God has to meet us on our own terms. And this is just a disastrous way, I think, to go through life and thinking that God always has to pr- prove himself on our terms when there w- we would not even exist if God weren't the one who created us. The opposite of faith is not reason, but it's unbelief. And what Mary shows us is a different way. She shows us, again, a thinking faith, a reasoning faith. She doesn't ask for a sign, like prove it. What she says simply is, well, how will this be? Like, how will this be? She accepts that it can happen, but she does not understand how it will happen. Um, Some of you might be curious about the Latin title of the sermon, uh, credo ut intelligam. It simply means I believe in order that I might understand. I Believe in order that I might understand. It's actually a quote from the Middle Ages from Anselm of Canterbury who was a monk and the whole idea is this is that uh, Understanding comes from the place of faith. So we tend to think that I've got to understand before I can believe but what Anselm says, and this is really what the scripture, is very biblical, is that I believe and then I understand. See, when we're stuck in unbelief and we're kind of looking on in and demanding reasons and there's a way that we can never penetrate the veil. But Mary shows us what, again, Anselm calls faith-seeking understanding. The reality is this, there is no neutrality when it comes to belief in the world. There's no such play, thing as a neutral place from which I can gather in the evidence and I can look at all the different arguments and then I can make a decision about what I'm going to believe. There's all, you're always presuming and believing in something. And perhaps it is you just believe really strongly in science or reason or whatever it is, but you're always presuming a faith in something. And Mary, Mary believes the word. And she asks, well, how will this be? I believe, but help me understand how this works. She's not afraid to ask questions. She understands what it means to be a woman. I'm a virgin. How will I have a child? I understand basic biology that to have a child, I generally need a man, to be with a man. And she's not afraid to ask difficult questions. And let me be really clear about that. I mean, it is, Jesus welcomes your questions. He welcomes your challenges. Do not be afraid to wrestle and ask difficult questions. But the question is, is, is it from a place of faith Or deep unbelief now when we ask God questions from a place of faith you have to be prepared for the kind of response the Lord will give you and the response isn't always what you might expect maybe in terms or categories that you can understand and we see this with the angel so she says well how will this be and what the angel does is he just gives her more mystery um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. What the angel here is doing is he, he's evoking the original creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. It was like a chaotic, sort of watery womb of sorts. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And in the same way, Mary, the Holy Spirit will hover over the watery chaos of your wombs, and the Lord will speak into it, and life will come about. That's how it will happen. Miracle. The child in your womb is like the miracle of the original creation. It is like the miracle of salvation itself. And Mary's response is quite remarkable. She just says, let it be. Let it be according to your word. Let it be according to your word. Do you think she understands all of what that means? For sure not. But she surrenders. She says, let it be. See, in, in the worldly ways, thinking and reasoning is a way for us to establish our independence from one another and from, one, from God. But in the biblical world, thinking and reasoning is a way we surrender. It's part of the process of us surrendering our lives, our very bodies, to the Lord. And that's what we see with Mary. She surrenders her womb her body to the word of the Lord. I think it's really important here to remember what Mary, when she says yes, <laughs> in a sense, to the angel, what she's doing. It's, it's not like, you know, really what was the hang-up here was like understanding the mechanics and how it all worked. And her saying yes to the angel put her at great risk. I mean, Mary was probably 18, 16 or 17, some say younger. Her getting pregnant, she's betrothed in marriage, but she puts her life at risk. And in fact, we hear this, we had from our Advent reading, right? When Joseph finds that she's pregnant, the assumption is she's been unfaithful. She'd had, she's, <laughs> she's had an, a relationship with somebody else. And if he had quietly divorced her, she, her life would be over, literally. I mean... <laughs> The first century was not, I mean, we like unwed pregnant teenage mom in the first century, they do not make it very far. The only future they have is poverty or prostitution. I mean, that would have been Mary's future. So her saying yes here, um, this is a risky, risky thing. Not only that, but you can imagine, you know, as a young girl, who dreams of getting married and having a large family, and then all of a sudden you have this other child that you're giving birth to that is not from your husband. What is that going to mean for family life? And who knows how this will impact, you know, like the rest of the family and the rest of the children, right? It's going to turn it all upside down. This child will always be with me, and that's the thing about having children. Your lives are forever linked to your children, whether you like it or not, (laughs) or whether they like it or not. Right? That it's, that's part of the, the profoundness of having children and part of the vulnerability of it as well. See, I think the hardest thing about having faith and trusting God's word is not the intellectual piece of it. It's not the lack of evidence or reasonability. The hardest thing about faith is it's giving up control. It's giving up control. That's the hardest thing about accepting the word of the Lord, giving up control of your life, surrendering your dreams and your aspirations of your life, giving up, in a sense, the sovereignty of yourself, the one who knows best. That's the hardest thing. And so that helps us understand that Mary's, when she says yes, there's something courageous about her faith. And I think that true faith really is courageous. Courageous. For all of us to say yes to God's word because there's a lot that can happen that you don't know that you can't control there's a lot of vulnerability and things that the Lord might call you to do or to suffer and it takes a lot of courage to be uh, able to say yes and Mary says though she says let it be let it be according to your word I am your servant I am your handmaiden and the, the Greek word there is actually doule, which is the word slave. You know, I am the slave of God. I'm the slave of God. I mean, this is a very hard for us to, to sort of use this language in our day and age, but, um, but that describes well um, the relationship. And Paul repeats this. And the, the, the idea is it's like, it's not everybody has a slave, master. Everybody's a slave to something. Everybody serves something. The question is, what do you serve? And who is your master? And in Mary's case, and in the case for for believers, is it's the one who comes to you and says, you are favored. (laughs) You are favored. You are loved. That's the master. Now, what we need to see clearly, though, is that courage to say yes that Mary had that involves faith um, is rewarded with fruitfulness in her life. When we surrender our lives to God's word, it leads and creates great fruitfulness and bounty in our life in and, and ways that you, you can't expect. And here's where I love the imagery of childbearing is, is a beautiful one because um, to be fruitful, I mean, as parents, you participate in a process of giving birth, but you don't make children, right? You participate in something, and you can't control what they will look like, and who they will be, and what their destiny, or anything. And yet, there's this great joy and fruitfulness that comes out of that experience, and pain as well. And that's, again, very much like faith. And here, Mary, uh, I think, is a contrast to Eve. Um, Obedience to the word leads to fruitfulness and bounty, but the, the serpent, the evil one, would always lead us to believe otherwise. And, and this is what you see point out in the story of Eve. When she heard God's word to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she was tempted um, to not, she didn't want to obey because she felt like she was being cheated out of something. That she was being cheated out of a fruit, of, of something good that God was withholding from her. And so she takes matters into her own hands, right? Um, acts contrary to God's word. And the irony is, is that even as Eve wanted the fruit and takes the fruit, what she does is she, along with Adam, lose the fruit (laughs) of the tree of life, right? And this is how it works in our lives. See, when we, we take matters into our own hand, when we disobey the word of God, we think that we're getting something we need, some kind of fruit that's being withheld to us, but what we do is we plunge our lives into more misery, and in the case of the fruit in the garden, the world now is overcome with painful childbirth and barrenness and toil and death. We try to preserve our lives, to feed ourselves, to secure our own bounty and blessing, but it blows up in our face. One of the themes that run throughout all of the, at least in Luke's gospel, um, the, the narrative of the Advent is this theme of barrenness. Um, To be barren is not to be able to have children, which was a sign of a great curse in the ancient world. As a woman, there was no greater shame you could bear um, than barrenness, to not be able to have children. And um, that becomes a metaphor for the spiritual life of Israel, that Israel is like a barren woman, um, sterile, unable to bear fruit or, or new life, which leads to this sort of crippling sort of atmosphere, the sterility. God is absent. And one of the interesting things that the angel says to Mary is, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. Things are changing, right? And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And that's part of the truth of the Christmas story, right? Of the advent worship is that where bareness and lifelessness and sterility and death and decay and toil and pain, um, things that are against life, that there's no barrier, there, biological or otherwise, that can keep the word of God from getting implanted in our hearts and in our lives and our bodies and bringing about fruit, bringing about new life. The word of God in your life is the promise of fruitfulness. And life, perhaps not how you thought, just like when you have children. You cannot determine who they would be or what they'll be like, but it is fruit. It is life. And it is the same with when we surrender to the Word of God. It brings with it life and vitality and joy and love. But like Mary, we need to surrender our bodies. And this isn't blind obedience or passivity, Um, it actually requires a great deal of courage into the unknown. It is like allowing yourself to, to have surgery, right? One of the most you know, nerve-wracking things about surgery is being willing to go under, right? Where you, you, you don't know what's going to happen and you're trusting you know, the surgeon. You're giving your consent. And that's kind of like what it means to be a, to be a Christian, to accept Jesus Is you Again, I can't imagine what it's like to have a child, but in a sense, you're surrendering your womb and your body to another human being growing inside of it. That has to be kind of a nerve-wracking thing, just from my perspective as a man. Surrender to the word of God for the word to have its way in our lives. The story of Mary is a story of human obedience. It is a story of her yes to the angel, but it is important for us to see in conclusion that Mary's obedience is a response to and made possible by a prior posture of God towards her, and that is one of favor. Twice the angel says, O favored one, you are favored by God. Greetings O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary becomes afraid. He repeats it again. Mary, as the angel comes to Mary, he doesn't say, I have an incredible opportunity to you if you say yes and obey. (laughs) if you say yes to this question, if you obey, you will be favored. No, she's already favored. And I think that's so important for us to realize as we think about the word of God and planting and growing and calling and claiming our lives is that we don't do this and we don't respond and say yes in hopes that God will favor us. He already favors us. (laughs) That's the point. You know, in a sense, Mary is God's elect already. He already truly favors her. And this, again, this is the mystery of God's grace, of God's electing grace, is that, in a sense, the fact that she is the favored one underwrites her life and makes it possible for her to say yes to Jesus coming. And it's the same for us, friends, that, that the grace is there, that you're already favored. And then when we respond to the word and say yes, the grace is there to see it through. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for courage um, for all of us, in one way or another. There's aspects, risky obedience, ways that your word, in very personal ways that are unique to us as as individuals. You are speaking to us, and you are calling us to do certain things. And some of those things are scary and risky, and uh, we need courage and faith to say yes and to surrender. But Lord, may we learn to entrust our lives to you, And may uh, we experience the fruit, the fruit in the intimacy that comes about when we say yes to your word growing inside of us. And so I pray that all of us here this week would have that experience and that deeper sense of, of how incredible your love and your favor for us is in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.